Hey guys, welcome back to That Florida Feeling. This is Jody. I need to give you guys some warnings about this episode. First, this is not the sunny side of Florida we normally talk about. This is the darker side and not the side from Star Wars that has cookies. No, this is the serial killer side of Florida and I need everybody to be aware of that before they start listening. I'll give you another actual warning in the episode, but I wanted you guys to know what's going on first and foremost. Also, I had a bit of an audio issue. So if you hear me repeat anything, I deeply apologize. I tried to find it and cut it at just the right moment, but bear with me. All right, guys, on to the episode. Hey guys, welcome back to that Florida feeling. How are you guys? You good? I hope you've had a good week. It's been a week. Thanks for everybody who liked, followed, or participated on the Facebook page and group, Instagram page, and Twitter. Thanks to everybody who participated in the weekly question. You guys are simply amazing. I love that you guys interact. Uh, Don't forget to like, subscribe, or whatever it is you do on whatever platform you choose to listen on. Thanks for listening, and thanks for keeping up with it. So, turn on those notifications so you don't miss any awesome episodes. And if you have a second, if you could leave a five-star review on Apple, I would appreciate it. It kind of helps the podcast. Now, I have to give you guys a warning for today. Today, we're not going to talk about the sunny and great and beaches and fun tiki bars part of Florida. We're going to talk about the dark side. And no, I don't mean the dark side that gives out cookies. Um... This is not really the family-friendly, fun side of Florida that we really know. And no, I'm not talking about, like, OBT in Orlando or Polk County or even really Florida Man at this point. I mean the real dark side of Florida. The side of Florida that people have heard about but don't really know about. And that's that Florida has actually been home to quite a few serial killers. That's right, a few. Not one, but a few. And even a few of them are famous. Or is that infamous? Okay, either way, though, you've heard of them. And today, we're going to talk about those that you know of and some that slip just below the radar that you haven't heard of. So, this is part one of Florida Sewer Killers. And I figured this was a good intro for October being spooky month. This is not so much spooky as it is just plain right dark and down. So, that's your warning. If you don't like this stuff, please do not listen past this point. It's not going to get any friendlier or fun or happy. This is going to be dark. It's going to be gory. It might have trigger warnings. So I really don't blame you if you want to skip until we talk about the sunny side of Florida, maybe even past October. But I just want to let you know that we're going to talk about these people, their crimes and their victims and what they did. And there's going to be details and there's probably going to be details you don't want to hear about. Um, you've heard of Ted Bundy and Eileen Warnos, and they famously committed crimes in Florida, but surprise guys, there are so many more. So with that, we're going to start talking about Florida serial killers. And the first person I want to talk about is Danny Rowling, or as he's known as the Gainesville Ripper. Anybody with the name Ripper in their name is just automatically, you know, a bad person. Um, Daniel Harold Rowling was actually born on May 26th in 1954 in Shreveport, Louisiana. So, not born in Florida, but decided to kill in Florida. And he wasn't born into the happiest family, which 
honestly seems like a theme for serial killers. I don't know about you guys. But they didn't all come up in, like, happy-go-lucky families. Uh, Rowling was born to Jane Rowling, who was a police officer. James. Jamie, sorry. Woo. Just reading things now. So, Jamie Rowling, who was a police officer. And he pretty much told Danny from the beginning he didn't want him. It's a great way to grow up, right? And the wonderful human being that was his father also abused Danny's mother, Claudia, and his brother, Kevin. And Claudia tried to report her husband and made several attempts to leave, but ultimately stayed with her husband. And I'm sure back then, since he was a police officer, it was hush-hush and under the radar. Sorry, guys. My cat just went crazy. Uh, I'm not sure if it was for her children that she stuck around, but she still stuck around. Uh, so it's safe to say that Danny didn't grow up in the greatest household uh, or the safest. One time his father even pinned him to the ground, handcuffed him, and had him arrested because he was just simply embarrassed of him. Great way to boost self-confidence in your children. So, we can agree he grew up in a less than ideal situation. And eventually that turned him into a criminal himself. He was arrested several times in Georgia for robberies and being caught as a peeping Tom while watching unknowing women get dressed. He also had trouble assimilating into society, holding steady jobs, and of course keeping out of trouble as he continued to get older. And he continued to have problems with his father. He even attempted to kill his father in a fight which resulted in his father losing an ear and an eye. Make your own assumptions whether his father deserved it or not. So Danny continued his life of crime and eventually ended up in Florida. August of 1990 is when Rowling really started his criminal life here in Florida. He started with burglary and robbing and eventually murdering in Gainesville. And that would brand him the serial killer that we know him as today. He first broke into an apartment in the early hours of August 24th that was shared by 17-year-old Sonia Larson and Christina Powell. He burglarized the house while the women slept before he stabbed Powell to death, and she died while trying to fend him off. He then went back downstairs to Larson. He tied her up, raped her, and then he stabbed her five times in the back. And not because he just decided that he couldn't just kill them. He then proceeded to position the women in sexually provocative positions, took a shower, because you don't want to leave dirty, and then left the apartment. Now, he was able to keep a low profile in these crimes because he preferred duct tape and would tape their mouths shut so that they couldn't scream or draw attention to other people so that people wouldn't realize that he was doing these crimes. But he couldn't stop. So the next day, on August 25th, he broke into the apartment of 18-year-old Christina Hoyt by prying open the sliding door with a K-bar knife, which is essentially a combat knife, and a screwdriver. Now, of course, you guys, side note, if you've ever lived in an apartment, you've probably had a sliding door, and you probably know that there's a bar that now comes on the door, or you've put a bar in to add to security to that track, because they're not the most secure doors. And he found that this was the easiest way to slip in and out of these places. Of course, when he broke into this house, he found that she wasn't home at the time, so he waited. Christina came home around 11 a.m., and Rowling surprised her by grabbing her in a chokehold and subduing her. He taped her mouth shut, tied her up, and raped her. He proceeded to stab her in the back, just like he did Christina Powell. And when he stabbed her in the back, he immediately ruptured her heart. But he left after that. He was done. He was tired of being there or something. And he went on his way, and then he realized he thought he lost his wallet at her apartment. Kind of wish he had, but he didn't. So he, he did, though, however, return to her apartment to see if he had indeed lost his wallet. And upon returning, he decided he wasn't done. He proceeded to decapitate her and pose her body 
with her head on a shelf facing her body because he wanted shock value for whomever discovered her body because discovering a dead body is not shocking enough. This guy's a true animal. Now, the murders at this point has already gained attention and students were told to take precautions by changing up their routines, staying in groups, sleeping in groups, and... Oh, sorry. And because the spree happened so close to the start of the fall semester, a lot of students just left. They weren't going to be in Gainesville. They didn't want to get attacked. Nobody wants that. So they just, they went to other schools. But of course, Rawlings didn't stop. He continued his spree on August 27th. Despite the media attention, he continued to break into more apartments. This time, again, via the sliding glass door, that housed Tracy Pauls and Manny Taboda. Rawlings attacked Taboda first and eventually killed him. Now, Paulus heard the commotion and went to see what was going on, and she saw Rawlings with Tabota and tried to barricade herself in the bedroom. Rawlings wasn't having it. He broke down the door, he taped her mouth shut, tied her up and raped her, and he continued to stab her in the back. He did proceed to pose her body, but he didn't pose Tabota's. Uh, he just left him where he killed him. Now, Rawlings did have a type he preferred. He preferred to kill petite Caucasian women with brown hair and brown eyes. Of course, Tabota being the exception. I kind of wonder if that's what his mom looked like. He was taking it out of his mom. Anyways, the police didn't have any suspects to go on at first. One was a UF student with a history of mental illness and bore scores from a, scars from a car accident, which was pictured on all the media outlets used when the police were talking about him and another suspect. Okay, side note, that is the stupidest crap ever. I really hate when police show who they're talking about because then it just vilifies this person even if they haven't done anything. I just, sorry, that bothers me. But anyways, back to Danny Rowling. Sorry guys, my cat wants in a cabinet that nothing is in. Um, but the police eventually publicly cleared both the suspects after Rawlings was arrested. Now, the police having few suspects really didn't help this case. Um, and it really didn't go anywhere until the Louisiana police were tipped off, or were tipped off and then tipped off the Florida police about an unsolved triple murder that occurred in Shreveport in 1989. Now, the unsolved murder uh, really raised eyes because the detectives noted similarities between the Gainesville murders and the murder of 55-year-old William Grissom and his 24-year-old daughter, Julie, and the 8-year-old grandson, Sean. Now, the family in Louisiana was attacked in their home as they prepared dinner, and Julie's body had been mutilated, cleaned, and, of course, posed, which was similar to the victims in Gainesville. And the murderer had used the same method in both, which included the use of duct tape, posing the victims, vinegar to clean the bodies, and, of course, the sliding glass door. Now, the fluids found at the Shreveport crime scene and the ones found at the Gainesville crime scene actually found that both murderers had the same blood type, which is type B. And a resident in Shreveport actually called Crime Stoppers to report that they had thought that it might be Danny Rawling that had done both of these murders. And they had seen a news report talking about the string of murders in August of 1990 when they were traveling through the Florida Panhandle and immediately brought Danny Rowling to their mind. They had met Rowling at their hometown church in Louisiana. And the reason that he stuck in their mind is because they had, they had said that Rowling had said some deeply disturbing statements. Along the lines of, one day I'm going to leave this town and I'm going to go where the girls are beautiful and I'm going to lay in the sun and I'm just going to wash them all day. He also talked to other church members and made comments like telling them that he liked to stick knives into people. I don't know about you guys, but if someone told me that, I'd probably definitely remember who they were. For many reasons. And get the hell away from them. 
But these reports did stick with these people, and they finally called in November, and they told them about their hunch about Danny Rowling. So the police, thank God, took this as an actual serious tip and began to investigate Rowling. Now, Rowling had been previously arrested on September 7th in 1990 at an Ocala supermarket for robbery that occurred the same day that Christina Hoyt's body had been found. And the police went back to the evidence locker that held the gun, the screwdriver, the money, and the cassette from the robbery and listened to the tape. They found that the tools he had used to get entry to the murder victims matched the ones in their evidence that they had gotten off Rowling when he was arrested. Rowling was found to be living in a one-man camp near the apartment complex frequented by students and their investigators, and they actually found audio diaries about their crimes. Okay, pro tip, guys. I don't think anybody's going to go out and commit murder, but if you do, please don't brag about it um, in journals or tapes. I mean, yeah, it helps the cops, but really? All right. Anyways, Rowling was charged with several counts of murder in November of 1990. And he was brought to trial close to four years after the murders. He claimed that his motive was to become a superstar like Ted Bundy before him. Rowling, in a surprise move, actually pled guilty to all the charges in 1994 before his trial could start. And the state attorney, Rod Smith, just went straight to the penalty phase of the prosecution to get the trial on and moving. And on April 20th, 1994, Rowling was sentenced to death. Before Rowling was executed, he handed his spiritual advisor and a Florida policeman a handwritten confession, an apology, that admitted he was responsible for the Grissom murders in Shreveport. Rowling was executed on October 25th, 2006, so not long ago, by lethal injection. He had his last meal of lobster tail, he sang a hymn, and he made no statement immediately before his execution, which was witnessed by the victim's relatives. Side note. Don't give them lost your tail. They don't deserve it. Give them a damn cold hamburger and fucking tell them to go to sleep. Sorry. So, Rowling was the subject of several works. Most were known as the popular slasher film Scream. So, yes, Scream was based on a real person. Of course, there were several books, independent films, episodes on TV shows, and even a miniseries about him. You can actually see an interview with his mother on court TV before his execution, where his father can be heard screaming off film. He refused to be uh, interviewed on camera. Now, a TV documentary in 2013 called The Real Story aired an episode profiling the movie Scream, and it talks about Rowling's real-life murder spree. Now, the latest about Rowling was actually an episode on 2020 that aired in 2021 on the murder case. Rowling even had his own murderbilia that includes songs, poems, and pictures he did while on death row. I don't get why you'd buy that, but... Whatever. I know there's people like Zach Bagans who collect things like that. and uh, Whatever. It's not something I'd ever want to own. Alright. Think Rowling was bad? Just wait. The next person I'm going to talk about terrorized Florida is known as Gary Ray Bowles. Now, you might have heard of him. He's more known as the I-95 killer. Now, Bowles was born in January 25th, 1962 in Clifton, Ford, Virginia. And he, of course, did not have a stable life growing up. His father actually died six months before his birth from black lung disease that was from him being a coal miner. And that left him be, to be raised by Frances, who was his mother, who, of course, remarried several times in his lifetime. Bowles was abused by his second stepfather, who was known to be a violent alcoholic, and even abused his mother and old, older brother. He was abused by his stepfather until he was about 13, when he fought back and severely injured his stepfather. I'm sensing a pattern here. 
He left home shortly after his mother chose to remain married to the man. Can't say I blame him. Of course, he left in anger, but he, and he was homeless for a few years after the decision. And he managed to make money by prostituting himself to men. Now, Bowles continued to have a hard time, and he was eventually arrested in 1982 for beating and sexually assaulting his girlfriend. He did serve six years for, for his crime in prison, and he continued to remain on the wrong side of the law as he was rearrested in 1991, where he was convicted of an unarmed robbery and theft of an elder, elderly woman's purse. He was sentenced for four years, but he got out after two. Now, Bowles stayed under the radar mostly until he killed his first known victim on March 15, 1994 in Daytona Beach. John Hardy Roberts, who was 59, was his first victim who had offered him a place to stay for a few days. Bowles then beat and strangled him to death and stole his credit card. So, that's just sad. The guy was being nice. Um, they considered him a suspect shortly after the crime because they found his fingerprints and probation records at the scene. But Bowles didn't stop there. He continued to murder four more men over the next six months. David Jarman in Nassau County, Florida. Milton Bradley, no, not the game guy, uh, in Savannah, Georgia. Alverson Carter in Atlanta, Georgia. And Aubrey Morris in Wheaton, Maryland. Now, you're wondering why I say this is the Florida killer, because he did start his crimes in Florida. And he would prostitute himself to these men before beating, strangling, and stealing their credit cards. And I guess back then it was harder to actually track people, so stealing their credit cards made more sense. Bowles was eventually added to the FBI's most wanted list, and was arrested on November 22, 1994, for the murder of Walter Jamel Hinton in Jackson Beach, Florida. Came back to Florida to end it all. He actually confessed to all six murders. He told the police that on, after his release from prison, he moved to Daytona Beach and moved in with his girlfriend. But he couldn't stop and he resumed working as a prostitute to make ends meet. He admitted that after his girlfriend had an abortion... Citing that he his sex work and prostitution was the reason that he didn't like that she chose not to be with him. This gave him reason to blame to start his killing spree. Now he pled guilty in May of 1996 for killing Hinton in Jacksonville on November 4th, 1994. He had killed Hinton by hitting him with a 40-pound stepping stone while he was sleeping, and shoved a towel down his throat during the struggle. God, this guy's brutal. He received the death penalty for Hinton's murder, and while sitting on death row, he continued to plead guilty for the beating and strangling of Roberts in 1994. Bowles was found guilty on three counts of murder and was sentenced to death, but this was actually reversed later by the Florida Supreme Court on the determination that the court aired by letting the jury hear that Bowles hated homosexuals and that the victim was gay. They felt this should have been left out. So he was given a new sanitarian to determine his outcome. And yet again, he was convicted of the death penalty in 1999. Bowles sat there for 10 years and was finally executed by lethal injection on August 22, 2019 in Stark at the Florida State Prison. He had three cheeseburgers, fries, and bacon for his last meal. I'm telling you, man, just give him gruel. So, Bowles was definitely probably one of the worst killers. He tended to really impact most of, of Florida. Even though it doesn't sound like it, he really only killed in Daytona and Jacksonville, but the fact that 95 goes all the way down to Florida, it was more of a scare tactic. Like, where is he going to go next? And I think those are really the ones that get, get people worried the most. Now, the next person I'm going to talk about is definitely one you've probably heard of. Um, 
There was a movie, there's been books, miniseries, just everything. And it also proves that not all serial killers are men. Eileen Warnos. Eileen was actually born Carol Eileen Carol Pittman in Rochester, Michigan on February 29th of 1956. Eileen's mother, Diane, was only 14 years old when she married Eileen's father, Leo, who was also only 16 at the time in 1954. Eileen's older brother had been born a little bit before in 1955, and while pregnant after only two years of marriage, Diane filed for divorce two months before Eileen was even born. She never met her father, and that's because he was in jail for the, at the time of her birth. He was actually in jail for sex crimes against children and committed suicide in prison in 1969 by hanging himself. Now, Eileen was actually abandoned by her mother in 1960 and was left with her maternal grandparents, Laurie and Britta Wernos who eventually adopted Eileen, which is how she got her last name, and her brother Keith in March of 1960. Sad thing is these people were both known to be alcoholics. Um, again, someone else who didn't have a great upbringing. Eileen actually started engaging in prostitution by the age of 11 for cigarettes, food, and drugs while she was at school. She was also known to have sexual activity with her brother and claimed that her alcoholic grandfather sexually abused and beat her as a child. She unfortunately became pregnant at the age of 14 after being raped by an accomplice of her grandfather, and she did give birth to a boy at a home for unwed mothers on March of 1971. The child was placed up for adoption. Now, Eileen eventually dropped out of school around the time her grandmother died of liver failure, and she was thrown out of the house not long after, uh, so that caused her to turn to full-time prostitution to support herself. She ended up living in the woods near her old house. She just sounds like she had an awful life, guys. Now, she had her first run-in with the law in May of 1974 in Jefferson County, Colorado, after driving under the influence, disorderly conduct, and firing a weapon from a moving car. She was then charged with failure to appear. Not one to stay where she was, she ended up hitchhiking to Florida in 1976, where she met 69-year-old Louis Gratz Fell, who was Yacht Club president. Alright, side note, if you've ever seen the movie... With Charlene, Charlize Theron. I just don't get how she managed to get a Yacht Club president to fall in love with her if she looked like that. Um, sorry, side note, back to, back to the point. But they were married. She did get him to marry her. And Eileen continued to get in trouble at the local bar. And she was even jailed for assault. Fell got tired of her crap and eventually got a restraining order on her after she hit him with a cane. Just his own cane. Not a cane. His own cane. Just a few weeks into their marriage. She said, screw it, and going back to Michigan. Didn't work for her, and she didn't stay out of trouble. She arrested in Antrim County and charged with assault and disturbing the peace after throwing a cue ball at a bartender's head. That's a new one. And her life continued to be a sad one when her brother died of esophageal cancer. Side note, she did receive $10,000 in life insurance money, and she basically spent it on a car that she wrecked. Now, she ended up back in Florida, because why not? It's Florida. And she was arrested in May of 1981, where she was arrested in Edgewater for the armed robbery of a convenience store, which equated to a whole $35 and two packs of cigarettes. She went to prison in May of 1982 and was released a year later in, 19, in June of 1983. Not one to stay in the same place, she ended up in Key West and was arrested in Key West in 1984 for the forgery of a bad check. 
Named as a suspect of a theft of a revolver and ammo in Pasco County in 1985. It's Pasco County. All right, whatever. Arrested in Miami in January of 1986 for car theft, resisting arrest, and obstruction of justice because she provided an ID in her aunt's name. And then she was again later detained for pulling a gun on her male companion in Volusia County in June of 1986. She had a couple busy years. Hmm. Now, doing all that meant that she was very well known to law enforcement agencies in the state of Florida. So she wasn't well at hiding anymore. She eventually met Tyra Moore in Daytona Beach at a lesbian bar. Why is everything in Daytona? Sorry. She met her at Daytona Beach lesbian bar and they moved in together. And they were actually supported by Wernos as she continued to be a sex worker. Now, she did claim that she loved Moore and she even said that up until her, her ending. Now, she was known for murdering seven men in 12, over the span of 12 months. The first one was Richard Charles Mallory. That was her first victim. He was 51, and she killed him on November 30th, uh, 1989. Now, Mallory was a convicted rapist, and Eileen, Eileen claimed to kill him in self-defense after he sodomized and beat her in a secluded area where they had gone for sexual acts. Volusia County eventually found his abandoned vehicle a few days later, and his body was discovered on December 13th in a wooded area a few miles from his car. He had been shot several times, with two bullets in his left lung being the official cause of death. That was the first victim. The second victim was David Andrew Spears. He was 47, and he was declared missing on May 19th, 1990, and his naked body was found on June 1st, 1990, off of US-19 in Citrus County. He had been shot six times. I mean, that's overkill. <clears throat> the third victim was Charles Edmund Karskadon. Forgive me if I didn't say that right. He was 40 and he was killed on May 30th, 1990. He was found on June 6th, 1990 in Pasco County and he had been shot nine times. Good Lord, that is anger. Nine times? Okay. The body had been wrapped in an electric blanket and was badly decomposing when it was found. Wernos was seen in possession of his car and later pawned a gun that was said to belong to him, or that was identified as belonging to him. So we know that she had something to do with it. She had his car and his gun. Peter Abrams Sims, Sims was her fourth victim, and he was 65. Sims left Jupiter, Florida for Arkansas in June of 1990, and his car was found on June 4th, 1990 in Orange Springs. Moore and Warners were actually seen abandoning the car and her print was on the interior door handle. His body has never been found. Troy Eugene Burris was her fifth victim. He was 50 and he was reported missing on June 31st, 1990. And he was found August 4th, 1990 in a wood area along State Road 19 in Marion County. He had been shot twice. Charles Richard Humphreys was her sixth victim, and he was 59. He was killed on September 11th, 1990, and he was found the next day on September 12th, also in Marion County. He'd been shot six times in the head and the chest. That's just a lot of anger. He was a former chief of police, and his car was found in Swanee County. I have a lot of questions about him being a former chief of police, if that's what happened to him. I mean, I get it. Wrong place, wrong time. But... I guess his instincts never kicked in or he was desperate. 
Walter Gino and Gino Antonio was her seventh and final victim. He was 62 and his naked body was found on November 19, 1990 near a remote logging road in Dixie County. He had been shot four times and his car was found five days later in Brevard County. Good Lord, she got all over Florida. <laughs> now, Moore and Warnos were seen ab abandoning the Sims car after an accident on July 4, 1990 and witnesses had seen the women driving the victim's car and were able to prove to police with that it was them because they actually gave names and descriptions of the people. So, of course, when the police had that, the media put it out and was trying to locate them. Police actually found victims' items in pawn shops along the way and were able to get her fingerprints to match the fingerprints found in the cars from these items that she had pawned. And, of course, with her extensive record, her fingerprints were already on file. Now, she was arrested on January 19, 1991, on an outstanding warrant at the Last Resort, which was a biker bar in Volusia County. Moore was eventually found in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and agreed to help them get an illicit confession from Eileen in exchange for immunity from prosecution. That's kind of smart of her. <laughs> so she came back to Florida, and with guidance of the police, called and begged Eileen to confess and clear her name. She went back and forth for a couple days, and Eileen finally confessed on January 16, 1991, to killing the men. But claimed it was self-defense as all of them had been trying to rape her or hurt her in the process. She was put on trial for Mallory's murder of Jan in January 14, 1992, a year after she confessed. And she was convicted of his murder on January 27, 1992, with the help of Moore's testimony and the use of the Williams Rule. Now, the Williams Rule allows prosecution to introduce evidence related to her from other crimes to help establish a pattern. So this this not only proved that she could have done it, but that she had done it either in the past or in another case that was upcoming. Of course, she pled no contest to a couple murders. The Humphreys, Burris, and Spears in March of 1992 was a pled of no contest because she wanted to get right with God. She was given three more death sentences in May of 1992. In June of 1992, she pled guilty to the murder of Cascadon and received her fifth death sentence in November of 1992. Continuing through her cases, she pled guilty and received a death sentence for the murder of Antonio in 1993. Now, she was never convicted of the Sims' death because his body, still to this day, has never been found. I guess it doesn't matter anymore, but that's why she wasn't convicted of his murder. Now, Warnos continued to tell stories, and they were all inconsistent about the killings, and initially claimed that seven men had tried to rape her while she was working as a sex worker. She then went on to recant the claim of self-defense, saying that it was robbery and desired not to leave any witnesses. She changed her story so many times. She told Nick Brumfeld during an interview that she thought the cam when she thought the cameras were off that, she that it was self-defense, but she was tired of being on death row and wanted to die. So she started changing her story from self-defense to robbery just so she could get over, just so she could get through this whole mess. Warnos had transferred to the Florida State Prison for execution, and she, was, she appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, but was denied in 1996. She even accused prison matrons of, taint, of tainting her food and saying she heard them saying they wanted to rape her or push her to commit suicide before her actual execution. Weeks before her execution, she gave a series of interviews to Nick Broomfeld, and she talked about being taken away to God and Jesus and that her mind was being tortured, she was being abused in prison, and that she didn't want to do this anymore. Her final words were, thanks a lot, society, for railroading my ass. 
She was actually executed on November, not November, excuse me, October 9th, 2002. She declined her last meal and instead opted for a cup of coffee. She was the 10th woman to be executed in the U.S. and only the second in Florida. She died at 9.47 a.m. and was cremated. Her ashes were scattered in an unknown place in Michigan by a childhood friend. Now, Warner's is different because she is a woman serial killer. She actually scored a 24 out of 30 on the psychopath checklist. And a person scoring 25 to 30 are consistent with the diagnosis of psychopath. Words, y'all. Psychopath. Now, since she was one underneath it, she wasn't actually diagnosed as that. But, I mean, we can all tell you that something was obviously not right with that woman. She was a very tortured soul. But she's not been forgotten since her execution, and she probably never will be. There are documentaries, books, music, po- music poems, TV episodes, and, of course, the movie Monster was on her whole life. It was also just announced that the prequel to Monster, called American Boogeyman, will be made. I don't know if I want to see that or not. Monster was good, but... Mm. Now, she is considered to have, gone, to have had psychopathic personality, and her hard life was said to irrevocably damaged her. We all know that she didn't have the best growing up. And she had lost most of the people in her life. We know that Warnos didn't have a loving family, like I said, or a genuine motherly role model. So she was probably prone to being angry in life. She also experienced a lot of abuse and trauma. She was developed... She was said to have developed a borderline personality disorder, and that was the way she disassociated with the traumatic world around her. She didn't make an impact just in Florida, but really on the whole world. People still study her case today uh, as kind of like a footnote or even to compare to see among other serial killers. It's just something that you look back to the past to try and predict the future. Now, the next person I'm going to talk about is Bobby Joe Long. Long was born on October 14, 1953, in Canova, West Virginia. He was born to Joe and Luetta Long, and he was born with an extra X chromosome. If you don't know what that means, it basically means that he had the ability to have female traits as well as male traits. Um, Long was teased as a child for his extra estrogen production, which led to having breast, and that's a side effect of Klinefelter syndrome. He actually had a breast reduction in his adolescence, and he suffered uh, from multiple head injuries as a child, which can lead to some issues. He even had a dysfunctional or rather unusual relationship with his mother. He slept in her bed until he was a teenager, and this even caused him to resent all of her boyfriends. He went on to marry his high school girlfriend in 1974 and had two children with her. He was then, he couldn't stay with her though. He actually divorced his high school sweetheart in 1980. Now, Long actually committed 50 rapes as the classified ad rapist in Fort Lauderdale, Ocala, Miami, and Dade County. He started this about 1981, and he would contact women through the Penny Saver and other classified ads. He would visit the woman, and if he found her alone, he, he would excuse himself to the bathroom, where he would take out his so-called rape kit, and then rape and rob the women. He was tried and convicted for rape in 1981, but after requesting a new trial, the charges were later dropped. He knew he couldn't stay in one area after that, so he moved to the Tampa Bay area in 1983. And of course, in 1984, not being able to stay out of assault, he managed to rape and strangle 20-year-old Elisa Wish in March. Unfortunately, her body was not discovered until November of 1984. Now, he continued his horrific crimes, 
By abducting, raping, and murdering at least 10 women in the Tampa Bay area, uh, thought to be the Hillsborough, Pinellas, and Pasco counties area, the investigation caused massive agency cooperation and large amounts of media from it. And this included help from the Hillsborough Sheriff, the FBI, Tampa Police, Pasco Sheriffs, and the FDLE. The bodies of victims were usually found long after the murders, and decomposition had taken over at, this, at that point. Uh, so identification made it a little bit harder. They were usually found near rural roadsides and dragged into the woods uh, as to conceal that there was even a person there. Now, he appears to have targeted vulnerable women that included abducting them while they were walking alone or by sex workers by persuading them to get in his car where he would rape and torture them. Of his 10 victims, five were known as sex workers and two were exotic dancers. The rest made up a factory worker, a student, and one with an unknown occupation. Now, he would even continue his classified rape ads when he wasn't murdering, and he attacked 33-year-old Lyndon Nuthall in her home. Now, November of 1984 is when Long abducted 17-year-old Lisa McVeigh. She was walking home after her double shift. He blindfolded her and took her home. She, being aware of the danger she was in and probably having heard of him, she proceeded to attempt to leave as many fingerprints as house as she could to help any future police investigations. After 26 hours, Long released her, and she was able to tell investigators information on his home, his car, and a time where she even heard him use the ATM machine. This information was super helpful and actually led police to identify Long and caused him to be arrested on November 16th of 1984. He was arrested outside a movie theater and initially only charged with sexual battery and kidnapping of Lisa McVeigh. Now, he did admit to the crimes about McVeigh, but police continued to question him about the unsolved sexual battery and homicides. He then refused to talk anymore. The only problem was is that when Long was first questioned, he was questioned and signed, or he agreed to sign a Miranda waiver, which meant that if he asked for a lawyer, he didn't have to give one because he had already agreed to talk. So police knew that they could continue to interrogate him even after he had asked for a lawyer. He never got his lawyer. He had signed that waiver. And thanks to the police being persistent and not giving up, he eventually confessed to the eight murders. Um, eight in Hillsborough County, or eight, eight murders in Hillsborough County and nine, nine total, so one extra in Pasco County. Now McVeigh was his only surviving victim, and thanks to her, and the police, they were able to link the other victims to him. Um, red carpet fibers were found on the other victims that matched the ones in his home, his car, and on McVeigh. Now, Long eventually pled guilty on September 24th of 1985 to eight homicides, the rape and abduction of McVeigh. He received 26 life sentences without parole. Now, the state retained the ability to seek the death penalty for the death of Michelle Sims, the one he had killed in May of 1984. He eventually was convicted of her death. And received a death penalty. And it was supposed to be via the electric chair. Now, the death warrant was not signed until April 23rd of 2019 by Ron DeSantis, Florida's current governor. And he was finally put to death, not by electric chair, but by lethal injection at that point, on May 23rd, 2019. That is 30 years after his conviction. He ate his final meal at 9.30 in the morning of roast beef, bacon, fries, and soda, and he was pronounced dead at 6.55 after making no final statement. Documentaries and TV movies have been made about his crimes. I remember this guy. He, we were living in Tampa at this time, and you would see on the news, he appealed again, he appealed again, he's fighting this, he's doing that, and then we got the note that DeSantis had signed the death warrant, and that was it. 
I do remember the day he was put to death. He is... The world is a better place not having human beings like that. Now, the last person I'm going to talk about is someone who was born, raised, and killed and died right here in Florida. Otis Toole is the name of the man, and he is the kind of person that will just make your skin crawl. Toole was born and raised in Jacksonville, Florida, and he, again, follows the pattern we've talked about. He grew up with an abusive mother. She actually dressed him in little girl's clothes and called him Susan after his alcoholic father had abandoned the family at some point. He made claims as a young child he was a victim of sexual assault and incest at close hands of his relatives, that his maternal grandmother was a Satanist who exposed him to the rituals and practices in his youth that included self-mutilation and grave robbing. He even got the nickname Devil's Child from her. Way to instill self-confidence. Now, he says that the abuse really started when he revealed his homosexuality to his family. Otis Toole could be said to be suffering from mild retardation as he only had an IQ of 75. He also suffered from grand mal seizures and would frequently run away from home. He was often found sleeping in abandoned homes. He was known to be a serial arsonist and even claimed to be sexually aroused by fire. He was in the documentary Death Diploma and he said that he knew he was gay from when he was 10 and he proceeded to have a sexual relationship with the neighborhood boy when he was 12. Now, as you can tell, Tool was not a smart person from just the IQ and life choices, and he eventually did drop out of school in the ninth grade. He knew that he had to make a living, so he started frequenting gay bars and became a male prostitute in his teenage years. Tool is claimed to commit that first murder at age 14 after being propositioned by a traveling salesman for sex. He proceeded to run the man over with his own car. He was first arrested on August 17th of 1965 for loitering, and that's really the first time we hear about him for a while. He kind of drops off the radar, and it's believed that he was drifting through the U.S. and eventually ended up in southwestern U.S., again, with supporting himself through prostitution and panhandling. Now, we know he was living in Nebraska in 1974 uh, because he became the prime suspect of the murder of a 24-year-old Patricia Webb. Tool knew he couldn't stay in Nebraska after being the prime suspect, even if he did or didn't do it. So he, tri- he moved on and settled in Boulder City, Colorado, where he again became the prime suspect in the murder of 31-year-old Ellen Holman. That was in October of 1974. He finally left and went back to Jacksonville, knowing that he needed to just stay home. And he returned in 1975 or thereabout after drifting and hitchhiking to get there. Now, he tried to conceal his homosexuality and marry a woman 25 years older than him in January of 1976. She left him three days later when she realized that he was a homosexual. Now, Tool continued to drift through life and eventually met up with Henry Lee Lucas in 1976 at a Jacksonville soup kitchen. And, of course, they developed a relationship, which led to a sexual one. And he later claimed to have accompanied Lucas on 1,008 murders at the behinds of the cult the hands of death the police have discounted the claims of the cult existence but not of the murders in january of 1982 tool barricaded 65 year old george soddenberg in a boarding house that he was living in with and set fire to the house soddenberg made it out but later died due to the fire tool was eventually arrested uh, on an unrelated arson incident not for soddenberg's death but for setting another place on fire And that was a little bit later. He actually confessed to the arson incident that wasn't related to death and was given a 20-year jail sentence. 
Now, in June of 1983, his, his accomplice is still out there, Henry Lee Lucas, and he was arrested for unlawful possession of a firearm. Now, as he was arrested, he began to boast, because he just couldn't keep his mouth shut, and told about the murderous rampage these two men went on. Now, Toole at first denied the involvement, but later went back on, on that and said that, yeah, he did do it with him. Lucas, though, also backed Toole's confession for the murder of Adam Walsh. And if that name sounds familiar, I'll talk to you about that in a second. Toole was eventually found guilty for the murder of Soddenberg. Um, and then later found guilty for the strangulation of a 19-year-old Tallahassee, Florida person. It did not specify man or woman um, for that one. And received, so a second death sentence. So he's sentenced to death for Soddenberg and then again for murdering a 19-year-old. Now the sentences were appealed, uh, but not overturned. He was commuted to life in prison. He would actually eventually go on to plead guilty to four more Jacksonville murders around 1991 and given four more life sentences. Now, if Adam Walsh sounds familiar to you, it should. Um, Toole is probably the most well-known for the murder of Adam Walsh. He confessed to this murder while he was in prison to another unrelated murder charge. He actually confessed in October of 1983. He said that he was going to kidnap Walsh outside of Sears after offering him candy and toys. Walsh went with Toole after being offered the candy and toys, uh, but became upset and wanted to go home. Toole didn't know what to do, so he knocked Walsh out after he wouldn't stop crying. Having no idea what to do with this child, he eventually pulled over to a rural area where he decapitated him and left the body on the side of the road. He later found the head in his car, having claimed to have lost it, and threw it in a canal. The police lost Tool's impounded car machete, therefore not proving it, but John Walsh, Adam's father, believes that Tool did it. Okay, can we just talk about the fact that the police lost an entire car? Not like one piece of evidence, but an entire car. Now, of course, the severely lost car hindered the investigation and really kind of just took the suspect away, but it was always thought to that Tool was the main suspect or the only suspect. Now, the police chief in Hollywood did admit that many mistakes were made in this case. Uh, the case was eventually reexamined, minus the car, and it still led the family and the police to believe that it was Otis Toole and that he could be the only person to have actually murdered Adam Walsh. The timelines all fit. Now, he admitted to this murder on his deathbed in prison. Uh, Toole also went on to confess the murders in northwest Florida along I-10 of killing David Schaller in Pensacola and Ada Johnson right outside of Fort Walton Beach. Toole was believed to have impulsive behavior, personality disorder, and, of course, pyromaniac. He did die of cirrhosis in Florida State Prison on September 15, uh, 1996, at the age of 49. No one ever claimed his body, and he was buried in Florida State Prison Cemetery still to this day. Now, I know I didn't mention a few people. Obviously, Ted Bundy's included. We know that Ted Bundy did commit murder in Florida. And that's why there's going to be a part two to this. Of course, that will be next week. Um, thank you for listening. So we will talk about Florida serial killers next week. If you don't want to hear it or you can't handle it, skip to the next one. That's your warning. Now, I know that Florida is obviously got a dark side, but we can't leave on such a dark note. So let's talk about something fun like Florida man, or in this case, Florida woman's antics today. A woman in the villages, which if you don't know what the villages are, it is a large community um, north of Orlando that is known for having the highest STD population in Florida, and it's all people over 55 and up. So, 
Now that we know what the village is, a woman in the village loses her license after a DUI, but wins a dance-off that nobody knew she was competing in. She was spotted driving erratically, and they managed to pull her over. They smelled the strong odor of alcohol when they caught up with her, and she admitted to having a few in dancing. She was offered a filled sobriety test to prove her innocence, but she declined due to having tennis elbow. Yeah. But didn't stop there. She followed it up with some dance moves. And when she was done, she wanted to leave and she wanted to go dancing. She actually told him this. Uh, she refused to cooperate with the police. Of course, the police had to use a little bit of force to apprehend her, although not much. She's just dancing. Um, she got so upset, she began to cry and she peed herself. She was later transported to the Sumner County Detention Center. So let's not end up like Florida woman. Let's be nice to everybody around us. Let's come back for next week's part two episode. Don't forget to drink water, wear sunscreen, and as always, that's your daily dose of sunshine.